Herald. I would ask that you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we are going to begin a series that will bring us up to Easter Sunday on what I have called famous last words. And for the next seven weeks, up to Good Friday, we are going to look at each of the seven sayings that uh, Jesus declared while being hung on the cross of Calvary. When I began to think about uh, famous last words, I began to think words are a powerful thing. Words can raise someone up. Words can bring someone to the depth of despair. Words are things that can ignite a heart of hope, and yet words can also take a person and take all the hope away that they have. And even more than that, last words are even more rememberable. They're, they're remembered. We define people many times by their last words. I began to do an internet search on last words, and I found some of them. Some, uh, in fact, two of the first ones that I share were words that the person never would have thought that they would have been their last words. Lou Costello of the famous uh, duo Abbott and Costello, his famed last words were the following. That was the best ice cream sundae I've ever tasted. He never knew that those were going to be his last words. Very similar to Bing Crosby who said to a group of guys the day that he died, the last known words of this great man, that's the greatest game of golf I've ever played, fellers. Those were his last words. In fact, there are words that define uh, people very much. Karl Marx, his last words to uh, a woman at his bedside was, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. In fact, last words aren't always just uh, statements about who we are but they show that we feel that we're invincible. A man by the name of John Sedgwick was on the battlefield, and his last words define his feeling of immortality when he says, nonsense, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And that was it. Some don't know what to say when their last words come. Pancho Villa, the Mexican uh, army leader, said the following. Don't let it end like this. Tell them that I said something special. He didn't know what to say. He said, just make sure you lie about it. And, of course, Oscar Wilde, uh, known for his uh, brand of humor, the writer said, either this wallpaper goes or I do. Looks like he went and the wallpaper stayed. Words are important things. Every day you and I speak thousands of these things that we call words. And they're important. And last words are of great importance as well. And Jesus was no doubt known for his words. As a teacher in uh, the first century, we see that Jesus was known for his words. In fact, we know that Jesus' words, he said, are eternal. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away but my, er, my words will never pass away. They're eternal. He went on to say that his words are life in John 6, 63. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. His words were like no other. In fact, when the Roman soldiers go and they try to arrest Jesus before his uh, uh, real arrest that takes place, they go back to the chief priest. And they say, why couldn't you arrest him? Why isn't he with you? And they give a response that's quite amazing. They say to the chief priest, no one has ever spoken the way that this man does. 
even his enemies, even those who were trying to take him and imprison him, were captivated by the words of Jesus Christ. We know that throughout the New Testament, in Jesus' earthly ministry, that his words had incredible power. His words were able to heal people from all kinds of diseases and afflictions. By the very words that he said, people were able to walk. By the very words that he said, people were healed from leprosy and blindness. His words were powerful. We know that his words set people free from the bondage of demon possession. By his very words that he articulated, he was able to set free once and for all demon oppression and possession. We know that while on the sea with his disciples, that out of his words, he said, see, be stilled. And it was during an ongoing storm. We know that through his words, miracles happened. And we know the greatest of all the words that Jesus may have shared was when he said to Lazarus, come forth. Why? Because out of his words came the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' words are of great importance. And for these next seven weeks, we are going to focus on, uh, in on words that Jesus cried from the cross. Amidst the pain, amidst the suffering, amidst the hardships that Jesus faced while he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. Jesus didn't just stay quiet, but he articulated words, words of great importance for you and for me to understand. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son, and disciple, behold your mother. He cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? When he was thirsty, he cried out, I thirst. With a victorious yell, he said, it is finished. And when he was ready to give up his spirit, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are important words. Words that can bring life to those who are in need of Jesus. Now, to give you a context, as we move forward in this series, we must understand a couple things. Number one, all of these are said by Jesus. These aren't said by a disciple. These aren't uh, said by somebody else. These are all attributed to Jesus while hanging on the cross, that he was the one that articulated these truths. We know that all of them find themselves in at least one gospel, some seen in multiple gospels. We know that all of them were said from the cross. As we go through this series, never forget the context by which Jesus is articulating these truths. We know that some, in fact, even this one today is a fulfillment of prophecy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing is a prophetic word from the book of Isaiah where it says that he made intercessions for his transgressors while he was on the cross. But one thing I want you to understand While the title says that they are famous last words, many people, many non-believers of Christ would say they are last words of Jesus. But praise be to God, these aren't the last words of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did give last words from the cross. But as we know to be true, Jesus went into the grave and on that glorious Easter Sunday was resurrected from the dead. And he would say later on to his disciples, because of the power and authority that he had been given, that we as his followers, we as those who are devoted and who love him are to go and make disciples to all nations. And he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we know that he said many other things before he ascended into heaven. 
These are great words. When we look at these words, there's a couple areas of application. Every time that we look at uh, each of these sayings, we need to understand that we're learning an attribute of who God is. In everything, if you listen to anybody talk, they're going to identify what they're all about, who they are. Words define many times an individual. Well, this is no different with Jesus. His words define who He is. We see uh, God as the forgiver of sins. We see that it is only through Jesus that we can have our way to paradise. We see Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus as the suffering servant. Jesus as the great victor over sin. And we see Jesus who is obedient. The obedient Son to the Father in Heaven. But what about for us? Well, as we apply the attributes of who God is, we see application for us today. There are seven applications that we'll see in each of these sayings. We see today of how we are to forgive because Christ first forgave us. Next week we'll see about redemption and how Christ has opened the door for you and I to be in a place called heaven for all eternity, just as that repentant thief did. We'll see how we are to live in a time of suffering. How we are to persevere when it seems like the cards are stacked against us. How we are to be content in the hands and arms of Almighty God. And how in Jesus, you and I will only find victory from our sin. A couple great commentators have written wonderful words about these seven sayings from the cross. A.W. Pink said, The words spoken from the cross reveal the excellencies of the one who suffered there. They inform us of the purpose, the meaning, the suffering, and the sufficiency of the death of our Savior divine. John MacArthur says, You cannot read Christ's cries from the cross and be confused at the meaning of the cross or be untouched by the power of Christ's death for sinners. It's my prayer that we would not go away from this series untouched by what Christ has declared to us. So let us stand as we read from God's Word and get into our text today as we open this great series, the famous last words. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 26. We know that Jesus has, has been tried. We know Jesus has been beaten. He's been abused up to this point. We know that He's spoken to Pilate up to this point. And this is what our text says after Pilate releases him to be crucified. Verse 26, as they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come. When you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull there, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Let's pray. Father God, we've opened your word and we come to an incredible moment in history. A place where our redemption was drawing nigh. We see where you are hanging on that cross. And yet the words that you have are words of forgiveness. And Lord, as we open our minds and try to wrap our hearts around this idea of forgiveness, Father, I pray that that would become a reality. That, Father, as we look at your example, we would see forgiveness in a new light. And as a result of that, that we would be able to be like you in this way. So, Father, uh, enlighten our hearts this morning and show us ways of application so that we can live differently than the world around us, that they would know that we are Christians by our love. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you forgive the unforgivable? How do you forgive when it seems like all you want is vengeance? All that you have in your heart is hatred. How do you forgive when someone has hurt you so bad that all you want to do is give them a little bit back of what you have tasted as a result of their sin? When we talk about forgiveness, when we see Jesus articulate forgiveness, it is a topic that is so huge for me to even try to comprehend. Getting it done in one sermon is impossible. Forgiveness has so many levels, and there's so many scriptures about it that it would be impossible for me to stick to the text and still deal with the theology of forgiveness. So if you have a desire and you have uh, an area of forgiveness in your life or want to know more about it, I would, I would recommend the book The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness by John MacArthur. He deals with every aspect of forgiveness. Every time forgiveness is talked about in the New Testament, he deals with it. Everything from church discipline on to dealing with restitution and dealing with confrontation and sometimes just open forgiveness he deals with. And I would commend you to uh, read that. And this is what he says in his introduction to this book. Vengeance is popular today. Forgiveness is not. Retaliation is often portrayed as a virtue reflecting healthy self-esteem. It is heralded as an inalienable right of personal freedom. Vengeance is evidence of a macho strength. Dirty Harry takes aim at the perpetrator and challengingly challenging him to flee. With intones, he says, go ahead, make my day. That is the existential moment in which his persona is defined. He will achieve personal fulfillment if he can kill the one who has done wrong. And that is so much like our society today, for it is drunk on the grapes of human wrath, Road rage, disgruntled employee rampages, drive-by shootings, and other crimes of vengeance are hallmarks of our generation. No wonder so many people are racked with guilt, anger, depression, and other destructive emotions. Early in my pastoral ministry, I noticed an interesting fact. Nearly all of the personal problems that drive people to seek pastoral counsel are related in some way or another to the issue of forgiveness. The typical counselee his most pro- troublesome problems would be significantly diminished, diminished and in some ways totally resolved by a right understanding of what the Scripture says about forgiveness. How do we deal with this subject of forgiveness? These aren't easy truths for us to understand. 
These are, these are easy things to preach, hard things to live out. It's easy to tell you as a congregation to forgive. But what happens when someone does something so grievous to you that it changes every aspect of your life? What happens when someone shares hurtful words with you that define who you are for the rest of your life? There are some people here whose father and whose mothers have said things to them who have changed the very essence of who you are as a son or daughter because of the words your parents shared. And instead of sharing affirmation and praise, they shared words that devoured the very essence of who you are. How do you forgive in a situation like that? How do you forgive when your friends depart from you and desert you in your hour of greatest need? How do you uh, forgive when an untrue accusation is shared and it seems that the person that shares it is hell-bent on you losing your reputation as a follower of God or a person of character? How do you forgive a domineering boss who makes you lose everything in your life, your family, your friends, because he keeps saying you must work harder and harder? How do you deal with a bypass promotion? How do you deal with emotional, spiritual, or even sexual abuse in your past? How do you deal with things like that? It's easy to preach about, well, just forgive, but how do you do that? Jesus is going to teach us this this morning. How do you deal with the cheating spouse who broke the marriage commitment? How do you deal with a God who allows suffering and disease? The Bible emphatically says that in all those circumstances we are to forgive. But how do we do that? We're going to see that Jesus in His moment of greatest pain, of greatest struggle, that He finds Himself not sharing words of wrath, not sharing words of vengeance, but words of forgiveness. And I want to look at this statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And see what it has to say. The first thing we see as we look at this cry from the cross is that forgiving the unforgivable begins with a prayer. The first thing that we must understand if we're going to deal with any kind of forgiveness on any level is that we must first of all understand that we as Christians must go to prayer first before we try to figure out how we're going to forgive that individual who has hurt us so much. What area of hurt do you have today? Go to prayer. That's what we see Jesus do. It says, Father, forgive them. Now we know that this is a prayer. He is talking to His Father. When we talk to God in heaven, we call that prayer. This is a prayer from the cross that Jesus is articulating. But this prayer from the cross, first of all, has some characteristics to it. The first one is, it's a surprising prayer. It's surprising. Why is it so surprising? Jesus prayed a lot. Why would this be such a surprising prayer? There's a couple reasons. First of all, the place of the prayer. The place of the prayer. Where is he praying this from? We know that just some hours ago he was praying in a quiet garden, meditating and crying out to his father, praying that if there was any part of God's will that this cup of suffering may be passed from him, that it would be. But then he says, it's not my will, Father, but your will be done. We can see ourselves praying in the garden. But would we have ever thought that we would be praying from the cross of Calvary? We see that this prayer came at a time of great commotion. It came at a time of great distraction. It came in the assembly of many people. It came when there was trouble. It came when there was enemies. 
It came when Jesus was at his greatest time of pain, suffering, and it came as his, at his death. And yet the Bible says he prayed, Father, forgive them. What a reminder for us. What a reminder for every person, man, woman, and child in this place, that in our hour of greatest need, in our hour where our enemies are surrounding us, in the moment in time where it seems that everything is going wrong, when it seems that we want to go get a pound of flesh out of somebody, Jesus does not show us that. But He gives us practical, and He gives us, in fact, not just a practical application, but He gives us an example. What are we to do when our world is caving in? We are to pray. Is that what you're doing when, you're tr- when the trouble comes and it finds itself on your doorstep? When your enemies are around you, do you find yourself, even amidst a time of great commotion, not trying to figure out how to fix the problem, but going to God and saying, God, forgive them. Father, they don't know what they are doing. Forgive them. Don't hold this against them, this sin that they're committing against me. The next thing we see is uh, there was compassion there. It was compassion. It wasn't just Calvary, which was the place, but there was compassion. Some are looking in their notes. These aren't in their notes. Just some extra credit here. Compassion. Jesus is being mocked. Jesus is being whipped. Jesus is being abused. His friends have deserted him. Only a young disciple named John and his mother Mary and the other Mary are there. And people are weeping and wailing over the loss of what they are seeing, this gruesome death. And we don't see cursing. If this was happening to me, you would have heard cursing. And I'm not even a cursor, but man, you put me on a cross, you're going to hear some words that have never come out of my mouth before. Why? Because I'm going to be angry. Because I'm going to want something to change. And what does Jesus share? Compassion. Compassion to who? Not to the ones that are helping Him, but compassion to the very ones who have put Him on that cross. What's your area of struggle in the area of forgiveness this morning? Can you say there's compassion for the one who's offended you? Can you say there's compassion for the one who's hurting you right now? Because if there's no compassion, then you will never get to a place of forgiveness. What a great word it says in Isaiah 53.7 that no words of brawling or cursing came from his lips. That he was silent like a sheep to the slaughter. What a surprising prayer. We see it's a sensitive prayer as well. It's a sensitive prayer. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. This prayer focuses on an amazing part of what man is. And that is man's greatest need. What is Jesus praying for? He's praying for forgiveness. What is the greatest need that you and I have as humanity? It isn't education. It isn't physical help. It isn't emotional stability. It isn't reform in politics. It isn't financial help or marital counseling. It isn't parental help or a leader to follow. It's none of those things. The greatest need that you and I have and all humanity has is forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was sensitive to that issue. He knew that was where our biggest problem was. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them. He went to our greatest need. What a reminder for us and an application for us when we are called to forgive. 
What is the greatest need of any individual in this place? It is that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And so many of us want nothing more than pain and suffering to go on that individual. And we want to do nothing more than to hurt that individual like they've hurt us. That's what we do. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We'll go and we'll take care of them because of what they've done. And what does Jesus say? Their greatest problem, their greatest need is forgiveness. Do you see that individual who's hurt you in the ways that they have? Do you see their need of forgiveness from God Himself? Someone once said that forgiveness is the most beautiful word in the human language. I wrote down that it's the most beautiful word because it deals with the most ugly, the most ugly problem that we have. The ugliest problem we have that being sin. It's sensitive to our need. Next we see it's sufficient. It's sufficient. Why does Jesus pray this? Why doesn't He just forgive them? He had forgiven other people before. The Bible says when a paralytic came to Him, Jesus looked to Him and what does He say? Your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. Why doesn't Jesus just forgive them of their sins? What's going on here? A.W. Pink in his book uh, in regards to the seven sayings of the cross said Jesus wanted for us to see that in total uh, involvement he identified himself with humanity. So what does he do? He goes to the Father and he says, Father, forgive. Why does he go to the Father? Because he wants to be identified as the sin offering back to God for man and our sins. And so what does He do? He goes to the Father who is sufficient to take care of these things. And He says, Father, forgive. This prayer is a sufficient prayer. Jesus identifies Himself with humanity. Now we see a couple things. Forgiveness comes when we identify ourselves with the offender. Now what I mean by that is that we recognize, please hear this this morning. A couple years ago, there was a situation that happened to Amanda and I where where we were offended. Someone hurt us and our family pretty badly. And I had to forgive, and so did my wife. And our family had to forgive the offender. And what we had to do is we had to identify ourselves with the offender. How do we do that? It doesn't mean we say, well, I would do the same thing in that situation. No. But what we did was said, they are a sinner just like me and Amanda in need of grace. And if I can't show grace, then how can I expect to receive grace and forgiveness from God? My friends, we don't have the right to hold grudges. We don't have the right to be able to uh, call people on the carpet day in and day out out of bitterness holding something against them. Forgiveness comes when we identify ourselves. Now look at what Jesus did. He doesn't forgive, but He gives the prerogative to exercise judgment back to the Father. If you think that, man, I've been hurt, I've been wronged, I should get some justice, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, it's not my justice to have. The book of Philippians says that He laid aside His divine prerogatives to become humble and to be viewed as a man, to walk as a man with flesh and blood. And He set aside some of the most wonderful prerogatives of being God so that He could identify Himself with humanity. So what does He do? He says, Father, I give it to you. 
Have you given that area of hurt, that area of pain back to God? Have you said, God, I believe what the Scripture says, that it is yours to avenge, that you will repay, that you are a God of justice. You know, God still dealt as just as justly as He was supposed to in the moment of the cross. We know that even as Christ cried out, Father, forgive them, we know and of course we believe that many of those who were a part of putting Christ on the cross, nailing those nails into His hands and His feet, are at this moment in time in eternal damnation and fiery judgment in hell. Why? Because God is a God of justice and He will repay. He will avenge. But we need to give our prerogatives over to God. So what does Jesus do? He says, God, it's, it's up to you. You deal with it as you will, but I ask that you would forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them so that they will still have an opportunity to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Remember that. This is what we should say in our moments of hurt. Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin that they've sinned against me against them. But Father, I pray for an opportunity that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? He sets aside the prerogative to judge And he lives a life of intercession. This is huge. Jesus says, Father, I'm going to leave the forgiveness up to you. And what am I going to do? I'm going to intercede on their behalf. What does he do? He prays for them. This is something he taught his disciples. When people come and they hurt you, when they persecute you, when they say wrongful or harmful things to you, what are you to do? You are to pray for your enemies. And he takes the seat as the intercessor, as the great high priest. So that forgiveness could be found. The second thing we see this morning, second thing we see is that forgiving the unforgivable always, it always involves a pardon. It always involves a pardon. Without a pardon, there will never be forgiveness. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. We've got to have a pardon that takes place. It says, Father, forgive them. Listen to what he says. But they don't know what they are doing. We see a couple of things about this pardon. I'm going to have you scratch out the first sub-point there because I changed it. This pardon, first of all, deals with a terrible problem. It deals with a terrible problem. The Bible says that Jesus cried out, Forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. He says, Forgive them for their ignorance, Father. They don't have a clue of what they've done. Now, what, what does that mean? Of course they knew what they were doing. We know that they were aware of the events that were going on. They weren't ignorant to the events of the crucifixion, my friends. They were ignorant to the enormity of those events. They had no clue of what was happening, of what they were doing. Yes, they saw themselves crucifying a man on the cross, one who had blasphemed in their opinion that he had said he was like God, but little did they know that they were placing the King of Glory on that cross The second person of the Trinity. The one whom all creation was created through. They had no idea that they had done that. There's two areas of their ignorance. First of all, they were ignorant of their Savior. Write that somewhere in your outlines. Ignorant of the Savior. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. Turn there for a moment. If you're in Luke, uh, go back to the middle part of the Old Testament. You'll find the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah uh, 53, we see the prophecy of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. Let's look at what it says. I'll give you a moment to get there. 
starting in verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to what it says. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty, majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Yet he was despised and rejected by man. By men, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And listen to what it says. And we esteemed him not. We didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Even though Isaiah clearly identifies who Jesus was going to be, that he was going to come as a Jew. He was going to come from uh, the line of David. That he would be born in Bethlehem, the prophet Micah told us. And yet, what do we see? We see them not identifying Jesus, even though he told them. Acts chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, I'll read that very quickly for you. Acts chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. This is what Paul, I'm sorry, this is what Luke says in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verse 12. It says, when Peter saw this after he had healed a uh, crippled beggar, he speaks to the onlookers and says, when Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as, as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. You handed Him over to be killed and you disowned Him before Pilate, though He had decided to let Him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised Him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that he has been given this complete healing, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. They were ignorant of what they were doing. They did not see Jesus for who He was. But there's a second element to it. They were ignorant of their sin. Ignorant of their sin. What the text says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 for a moment. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. How many are, are pretty comfortable with Ephesians chapter 4 these days? I've been dealing with that in small groups. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 18. It says in verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you may, must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Why, Paul? Why are they separated from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Why do we find ourselves in sin? Because of the hardening of our hearts and the ignorance that comes as a result of that. We see in our text, or in uh, another text, 1 Peter 1.14, that tells us that ignorance, it's through ignorance that the evil desires that we have come forth. The reason why we sin is because we don't identify Jesus as the Savior and Lord as those men who crucified Jesus did. And then we also are, don't see the sin in our own lives 
And we're ignorant of that. And as a result of that ignorance, we find ourselves falling to all kinds of sin. It deals with a terrible problem, but it, it also consists of an ongoing principle. The Bible says, Father, that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they are doing. And we would say, okay, Jesus articulated that once. Cried out as He hung on that cross, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they've done or what they are doing. And yet the Greek implies something completely different. It isn't that He cried it out once, but that He cried it out over and over and over again. Think for a moment as, as those hammers went into the nails. He cried out, Father, forgive them. As they began to place that, that cross into the ground, and as His skin began to rip, as the force of His body came down on that cross, He cried out, Father, forgive them. When they began to barter for His clothes, He cried out, Father, forgive them. As people jeered at Him and mocked Him, He cried out, Father, forgive them. Ongoing, a continual movement. It was something that was going on on an ongoing basis. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. What a reminder for us because now our Savior intercedes on our behalf. And what is He doing? Just like what He was doing on the cross. When we sin, what does He say? Forgiven, 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 forgiven. Why? Because we've trusted Christ as our Savior. Because we've been found to be in the family of God as a result of our repentance. And what does He do? Just as He did on the cross, He cries out, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. I shared this with the elders. What an amazing thought for us. If we would truly understand what our sin did for Christ on the cross, and while He was on the cross, He was crying out for my forgiveness, ongoing, Father, forgive Tim. He doesn't know what He does. Forgive Tim. He doesn't know that I am the Savior. Father, forgive Tim. He doesn't know what his sin does time and time again. Father, forgive. What are we to do with this? Well, we see it's a commanded practice. It's a commanded practice. Jesus is the ultimate example. He practiced what He preached. In Matthew 18.21, Peter comes and the disciples ask a question. They say, well, how much are we supposed to forgive someone who offends us? And they're bringing back uh, uh, the, rabbinical law, the rabbinical law that says that you were to forgive an individual three times. If they wronged you three times, it was strike one, okay, I forgive. Strike two, I forgive. Strike three, I forgive. But strike four, man, you're on your own. Do what you want. So what does Peter say? He says, Jesus, sir, how many times? Seven times? Two times the amount what the rabbinical law said that we were to forgive? Peter must have been feeling pretty good about himself. I'm saying I'll I'll forgive twice as much. What does Jesus say? Not seven times, but 70 times seven. An unlimited amount of times. You keep forgiving. You keep forgiving. They hurt you time and time again, and you keep forgiving. What did Jesus do as they nailed Him to that cross? Forgive Forgive, forgive. It's a commanded practice. We are called to forgive. Next, we see it contains power for all who need it. 
who needed this forgiveness? Well, we could see, first of all, the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Those soldiers that nailed those nails into him. The one who took his spear and put it into his side. Those that spit upon Jesus. Those that took the cat of nine tails and whipped Jesus. Of course they needed to be forgiven. And we see that this power went to those below the cross. It was for those who were below the cross. As Jesus was lifted up on that cross, His forgiveness was being given to those who were below Him. People like Pilate, Herod, the chief priests, the Jews, the Romans, the mockers, those who had deserted Him, Peter, James, and the other disciples. Even for John, the one who was standing there with his mother. The centurion, Joseph of Arimathea, those that were a part of that, all needed forgiveness. But it goes beyond that, and that's the power of this forgiveness. Because it's not just for those below the cross, but it also goes to those beyond the cross. It goes to you and me. It goes to the crowd at Pentecost. It goes to Stephen, who would find himself being beaten and being stoned for his love and passion for Jesus Christ. And what does he say? He articulates the very words of our Lord and Savior, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he looks up to heaven and sees this glorious heavenly picture of Christ. And he does what he is commanded to do. He forgives. This power of forgiveness goes to every one of us in this place who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And if we have bowed our knee to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that there is forgiveness The power of the forgiveness on the cross of Calvary is the very power that gives you and I eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what do we do with this this morning? Final point is that forgiving the unforgivable is the only way that it makes the only way for us to experience peace. Maybe today you're dealing with some issues of forgiveness. Maybe you're trying to even forgive yourself. There's some sins in your past. You say, God can't uh, give me forgiveness in that. God, God can't turn His eye from that. No, He can't. That's why He sent His Son. He can't just... Forgiveness is not just, well, okay, so you screwed up, so you've sinned against me. All right, I'll, I'll just kind of forget about that. Jesus and our Father in Heaven didn't forget about our sin. It wasn't that He all of a sudden had spiritual amnesia and said, oh, I can't remember what Tim did. No. The forgiveness was costly. And he said, the only way that Tim can be forgiven is if I put my son on the cross. And he said, before the foundations of the earth, he planned that the son would go to the cross because he knew of our sin. Without forgiveness, we will live without peace. And maybe today you're sitting there and you can't give forgiveness away and you don't have peace. Maybe you've been unable to forgive your spouse and there isn't peace. Maybe you're unable to forgive your parents and there isn't peace. Maybe you're unable to forgive someone here at the church and there is no peace. Without forgiveness, there will never be peace. And that's true, first of all, when it comes to uh, peace with our Creator. If we want to have peace with God in heaven, it begins with forgiveness. And the only way we can do that is if we confess our sins. 1 John 1.9 says, For the believer, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we want to be a child of God, then it begins by bowing the knee and confessing our sin. What are we confessing? 
We're confessing the two things I talked about in the previous point. That Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who came to die. And that we confess our problem with sin. Do you see what happens? We no longer are ignorant to the things that are holding us in. Sin and the Savior. We say, Jesus, it is you. You are the one. You are the Lamb who was slain. And you were slain because of my sin for which I have committed. How about with other Christians? With other Christians. Based on the forgiveness that Christ gives us in salvation, we must do the same. So someone that's hurt you, who calls themselves a Christian? Are there words that a brother or sister in Christ have shared with you? Is there something that someone has done? And every time you see them, your your blood begins to boil. And you say, I can't stand them. Who do they think they are? How can they call themselves a Christian? The only way that you'll find peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ is forgiveness. And which I will add again is a commanded practice. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and Colossians 3.13 says, Just as Christ has forgiven us, we are to forgive one another. I'm going to turn the tables for a moment. How can you call yourself a Christian if you can accept the forgiveness of God and not give out the forgiveness to someone else? Take the plank out of your eye. Take the plank out of your eye. Stop looking at the speck in someone else's. Don't question their salvation. You say, how can I accept something and not give it out to someone else? Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Our forgiveness is not, listen to me, is not based on what someone says or does. Our forgiveness, first of all, begins with what Christ has done for us. That's where it begins. It begins with forgiving as Christ has done. Now, some questions come up very quickly. Does that mean we don't seek repentance by an offender? Of course we do. We ask and we pray that that person would come to a place of repentance. Does that mean that we uh, remove all consequences? Absolutely not. The Bible says a man reaps what he sows. There are consequences when someone hurts you or someone hurts you in the way that breaks the law. There's consequences to that. Does that mean that we as a church will never discipline somebody for their sin? Absolutely not. We will discipline individuals because that's what the Bible says. Forgiveness doesn't mean that everything just all of a sudden just goes away. There are consequences. Think about this for a moment. When you trusted God as your Savior, some of you who trusted Christ at an older age, did that make your life just perfect all of a sudden? All the issues of your past, did they all get resolved? We heard a testimony today how the sins of a youthful past change the direction of a, of a person's life. Did that change when Pete came to know Christ? No. There's consequences as a result. Does that mean we release our bitterness against that individual to God? Absolutely yes. Does it mean we give up our prerogative for revenge? Absolutely yes. That's what biblical forgiveness is all about. A final application of Christian. As Christians, we must forgive in all circumstances. In all circumstances. There's a lot of teaching that is out there when it comes to what we are to do when someone wrongs us. And that's what I love about John MacArthur's book on this issue of forgiveness. And again, if you're dealing with some particular issues of forgiveness that I haven't even talked about, read the book. It's a wonderful book. But we know this, that no matter the event and no matter the enemy, write that in your outlines, we are called to forgive. We're called to forgive. 
That's what we're to do. Why? Based on Christ's forgiveness for us. We are called to forgive. No matter what happens in our lives, we are called to forgive. Every week that we do this series, the elders decided that it would be important that because we're remembering the cross, that we would remember as Christians are commanded to remember. And that is in a time of communion. I'm going to ask the, the men to come forward. It's going to be a little different than how we celebrate communion every other first Sunday of the month. But each one of these weeks, we are going to have a time. We're going to quiet our hearts. And we are going to ask God to deal with us in the particular place that we're at today. Where are we at today in this area of forgiveness? For some of you, you've forgotten the cost of what Christ paid on the cross of Calvary. You've forgotten that He shed His blood for the remission of your sin. And you've forgotten that. Remember that when He was on the cross, He cried out, Father, forgive you. And He cried out to forgive you of your sins. Maybe some of you today need a remembrance of what Christ did because we've forgotten what Christ has done in forgiving us, that we're unable to forgive others. We're going to go ahead and play a, a video, and the men are going to pass out the elements, and we're going to just spend a moment in meditation as we partake of the elements in a moment. Spend some time talking with God. Finally, behind your grave 
application as we come to this table. Application number one, if you have never found that sweet forgiveness, then come to Jesus Christ this morning. Bow your head, bow your knee to Jesus and say, Jesus, without you I can do nothing. Jesus, without you there is no forgiveness in sin. And I identify you. I praise the name that you are my Savior. And I know that my sin keeps you from me. And if you need to, want to talk more about that, if you want to have someone pray with you or answer questions, then come talk to me. Go to the people at the Welcome Center just outside these doors. We want to talk with you about the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel in and of itself is forgiveness of sins. Second application. What a reminder for us as Christians who have experienced that forgiveness to once again proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because it is at this communion table that we remember our forgiveness of sins. But let us never forget the third application. In light of Christ's forgiveness, that we would go to one another and just as, for God, as, just as Christ forgave us, that we would forgive our brothers and sisters. Just as Christ forgave us, we would forgive that offense that has been done by a boss or a co-worker. By the name of Jesus, we would forgive that spouse who has had an affair, who has cheated on us. We would forgive that parent who was harsh with us. We would forgive that individual who has done us so much wrong and so much harm. It is at communion that we find it. And that's why Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took the bread and He said, Take heed. This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me and My forgiveness. Let us partake together this morning. It was after supper at that same evening meal that He took the cup and He said, This, new, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you eat it. Drink it in remembrance of Me, remembering that forgiveness can never be found without the remission, uh, cannot be found without the shedding of blood, for there, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin, the book of Hebrews says. So we remember the blood that was shed for our forgiveness and we partake together. Father God, we come before You and we heartily say thank You for Your forgiveness this morning. And Father, I pray that as we uh, move out of this place, that we would remember the cross of Calvary. We would remember that You cried out, Father, forgive us as You forgave. 
And Lord, that that was seen and that forgiveness was played out when we bowed the knee to Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we gave our lives over to You. That forgiveness was there. That we have been justified. That we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness. That we are now whiter than snow. And that, Lord, You have forgiven us and You continue to forgive us for the wrongs that we do. Oh, Father, we rejoice in that. And, Father, we pray for the one who is here today who has never found that forgiveness, who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, because we know without making You Lord and Savior of our lives that we will not find forgiveness, but we will find wrath and judgment. Oh, Lord, that people would cry out to God today like never before and seek Your forgiveness because it is in Your forgiveness that we find righteousness. It's in Your forgiveness that we find the loss of our sin that is taken from us and placed on Your Son. And, oh Lord, I pray for those who may be struggling with one another today. Oh Lord, that we would be like You in this way, that we would forgive. Oh, Father, don't let us look to the distractions of the rest of the day that if there is something between us and a believer, the book of Matthew says that we would leave our gift at the altar and go make right so that we can come and worship together in the unity of the Spirit. Oh, Father, I pray that this place will continue to be a place of unity, that we will deal with our problems with one another through the principle You've given us, forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. Oh, Father, we need your forgiveness this morning. And we thank you that we found it at the cross of Jesus. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing with us.